0: Alex, what would be the number one thing someone could do today in terms of supplementation or their general recovery that it's going to help them with strength training?
1: I think the first thing is actually super simple. And that's the traditional creatines. But understanding why you're taking that creatine monohydrate. So this conversation is going to build as we talk longer throughout this podcast. But I think just the basic creatine monohydrate is so impactful that people forget and the two biggest things, the reason why I like it for a lot of strength athletes and really all athletes in general is number one, just the sheer action on ATP driver and production. And number two, the ability to properly manage glucose. So if you're looking at making sure glucose is utilized properly, in like an intra-workout setting, and remember what we're doing intra-workout, heart rate's high, blood pressure is high, ventilation, <laughs> you're breathing, you're hypoxic. No matter what training you're doing there's a high amount of blood flow and hemodynamic change that means blood oxygen nutrients all of those things are shifting and it's changing how you utilize all the nutrients in your body on top of what creatine some are a really big fan of actually having creatine intra-workout for a lot of people because you can drive up that glycolytic process a little bit harder and get glucose to working muscle just a little bit more efficiently and that just potentiates the atp equation as well so first thing right now everyone's taking what five grams of creatine you know 10 grams of creatine whatever uh, by the way, you can work that up super high. Like my marathon runners, people at like the Olympic level and things of that nature, they're at like 50, 60 grams as long as so their gut can tolerate it. They can take a lot of creatine Jeez. and not have any issues getting water tested, things like that. Um, again, your gut has to obviously accommodate. That's not everyone. You have to try to perform some of that good stuff. But that's something today that everyone can go home and say, you know what? I'm going to put my creatine intra out today. I'm going to go maybe if I'm a female, I'm starting off with one gram. Then I'll go to two and three and four and five and just see what you can work up to. And where's that bell curve response? Cause everything's gonna help you to a certain point. So is it five games is gonna be awesome and you get to 10 as a female and you don't see any extras, you just go back to five. Or are you a male and you work up to 10 you see more HP recovery, you feel better during the workout, go to 15, you feel just as good, you go to 20, feel like better than 25, you just, you know, get the, the creatine poops, run to the bathroom, it just comes out like all liquids, a very specific creatine poop, um, and you go back, you know, so today that's the first actionable thing I think anyone can do.
0: And Alex, in terms of taking that intra-workout, what are you seeing as the main difference there? Is it that you're improving that kind of nutrient shuttling, or is it just that it's a handy time to take it and you, you're already making up a protein jig or whatever to have as you're training.
1: Yeah, so I probably should have prefaced it with that. In my paradigm, almost all of my athletes are pretty having pretty much having some kind of an intra-workout shake because what I said before, that time, that that autonomic shifting that occurs during a workout when you're having a high amount of myotrauma, the pH of your cells are changing. Neurologically, it, it's lighting up like you're having sex. During sexual intercourse, every cortical region of your brain is activated to some degree almost to the same extent it's the same thing as weight training so all of these things are going on that to me that's like the opportune time to take something so if it's essential amino acids if it's hydrolyzed whey, if it's some kind of a high molecular weight carbohydrate or if you don't get gut issue uh gut issues with dextrose you can take that um the creatines the if there's like sodium bicarb in there for buffering ph like there's a lot of different things you can put in there so i prefer to have it in there because of the autonomic environment you're in there's no other time of the day whenever your blood pressure is that high your heart rate's that high You're hypoxic blood volume and distribution's changing it's very specific and it really is it's a very cool time to just do cool stuff
2: and what should someone be looking for if we're getting to that critical mass of creatine so what are we looking for in our, our strength training specifically maybe
1: in terms of like max creatine dosage or yeah
2: yeah like how, how do you know you're getting something from that creatine like would it be supremely noticeable little session per session or is it kind of at the end of a training block you're two percent higher than you would be
1: kind of thing you should be noticing it from a biofeedback standpoint every session so it takes a little bit depending on who and who you're talking to because certain people are very in tune they can tell you "Hey, you know what resting heart rate's probably high check it it's like 90 was normally 70 you know other people may never notice their heart rate going that high so depending on the athlete specifically trying to focus on biofeedback so if you are that person who's very in tune with your body, you should notice the changes session to session. It should be that immediate of an effect where all of a sudden you got an extra rep when you're only hitting a double, now you hit a triple. Or you can do an extra set of a single or those little things and markers like that. Another big one too is your intraset recovery. So that's really where parasympathetic beta station comes in. The recycling of energy in between your actually working sets, that's all reliant on that parasympathetic system. So creatine intra-workout can kind of not really mask that, but it can kind of facilitate that process and proper utilization of fatty acids because of hot spots and glucose as well. So how you recover in between sets, your total amount of volume you can handle, all that kind of fun stuff should be changing. But if you're that person who you're just like, I just take whatever at the end of the block, I'll see if it works. Like you really are not that to your body, which is maybe, you know, a good amount of people just give it a whole training cycle. Give it whatever your micro, meso, whatever it is, give it that time and see if it was better than before, any noticeable changes. If you don't know it's any different, just go back to where you are.
2: And are we doing the same on off days?
1: Usually with creatine monohydrate, um, because most of my athletes work out so frequently, it's usually not even needed on rest days, but it's not going to hurt you. It's still going to have the same kind of creatine-based actions anyway. So if you're taking it for an extended period of time, those stores are pretty much going to be saturated. So if you're training three, four times per week, that's usually the minimum amount. If you're training more than that, you definitely don't need it on rest days, but it's also not going to hurt you. So let's say you start off your rest day in this paradigm. Let's say maybe you're having more nitrogen glucose for the first couple of meals of the day and more kind of fatty protein meals for the second half of the day. In that scenario, start off your day with good glucose metabolism. Get that actual amylin C-peptide process going a little bit faster and have creatine with your first meal of the day, to potentially how you utilize glucose for the rest of the day. So by the time you get to those fattier meals, you clear that food from adipocytes and you're getting more, uh, more precise recovery. So you're waking up the next day and you're getting a little bit more automatically flexible, going back to the rest periods. So during the rest periods, you could do what? Use fat as fuel so you can actually recover a little bit faster. So we set up the training actually by setting up the rest days, right? For strength athletes and people like that.
0: It's a very interesting way of thinking about your rest days where you're essentially just prepping yourself to be better at utilizing nutrients. Rather yeah, than most,
1: pretty
0: much right yeah most people on the rest days it's just like oh if i'm trying to lose a bit of weight i'll eat a bit less or and if not i'm just going to recover and get back to training tomorrow um very interesting alex one thing you talked about there and i think as we're talking about intro workout carbs or intro workout supplementation is that kind of gut effect so we talked about dextrose take it at the same time as creatine it's definitely something we come across quite often when you're talking about this kind of stuff is people getting some sort of irritation in the gut, or it doesn't feel great. Is there any advice you'd have around that kind of intra-workout supplementation, whether it's the volume of stuff they take or the relative concentrations that would help with that?
1: There's a lot there. So first of all, we'll start kind of top down. Uh, first thing, we'll say amino acids. So let's just say there's essential amino acids in there or hydrolyzed whey. Essential amino acids by themselves are bitter. They taste terrible. No one likes them. So usually if you add a good tasting carbohydrate, sometimes it's not enough. So sometimes adding the bulk essential amino acids, maybe not the best route to go, you know, maybe buying an actual blended product because they can actually overcome that flavoring profile very, very well in testing. So sometimes if you just buy a bulk product that has your EAAs and some kind of carbohydrate in there, you can get over that so you don't have those gut-based issues and reactions. The other thing, too, before we also get into the carbs, is some people get very sympathetic. They get a bunch of blood rushing to their viscera, to their stomach, and they just can't digest at all. So certain people, and also maybe it's only 5%, 10%. It's very much on the smaller spectrum. Certain people just won't be able to tolerate anything at your besides water. Like that just happens. They get such a massive sympathetic response. They'll start belching and burping. That's usually an underlying GI-based problem. So more like, like upper fundus-based issues and inflammation, things like that. Um, but let's say that's not you. So we've got the EAs figured out or hydrolyzed way. Hydroweight intra, like five or 10 grams of protein is usually enough, but it can be kind of gross. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever done that before. Like, it's okay, but just the flavor of having a hydrolyzed weight during the workout is just repulsive to me. So, I don't like it at all, but you can do it. It works perfectly fine. We've got those out of the way, got our nitrons out of the way. And the backbone of everything right that is driving down proteolysis that's making sure that that workout period we are not digging a huge ditch which we can't get out of just a little bit so we can create adaptation because it's all just stress response adaptation at the end of the day moving into the carbohydrate side of things usually dextrose is going to sit and just kind of ferment in people's stomachs when they're having it into workout but not everyone that's the traditional like gatorade powders and things like that um i'm sure you guys have talked this many times before i actually have not listened to your podcast so i'm sorry Um, like the gatorade powders of the world they throw like a sprinkling of sodium ions and chloride ions potassium ions. so it's helping you more than just water but not really that much but either way it does have that dextrose component where most people bloat from it if that's you look into other products that have a higher molecular weight because it increases gastric motility so it will just go straight through your system into the bloodstream you're not have much of a gut-based interaction as much as like a dextrose would so something like a highly dextrin carb 10 carbolin. There's a lot of ones out there. You can wax them a starch, excuse me. And people like to favor one or the other for this reason or that reason, they all work pretty much the same, but individually they will change. So I may respond very well to this, you may respond very well to that. So if one doesn't work, try the next one. There's a bunch of different options out there. If someone can just tolerate dextrose, then it's gonna be no inferior or superior to any other source out there. It's more, what's it doing to your digestive tract? and in terms of the creatines, usually most people don't have a gut-based reaction with creatine monohydrate. If not, you could try some of the other, uh, what's it called, like the creoplates and things like that, the different alkalinity-based formulas, and that usually solves it pretty well. Usually people don't have issues with that. And then I talked also well about the uh, like sodium bicarbonate and things like that to kind of buffer pH um, that can also be taken in a pre-workout setting. Same thing with like a PICO Two. If you're having more of like a glycolytic block, there's a lot of cool things you can bring in there, either you know, peri-working, you know, pre, intra, or post peri workout
2: So how would this kind of intra-workout look? So we've got our kind of nitrogen-based substances or we've got our kind of primary protein-based, we've got our carbs and creatine. And if we've got someone on the strength side of things Would it differ much for someone maybe grappling, jiu-jitsu, wrestling, uh, maybe a field sport? Does it look a whole lot different or is it largely the same kind of intra-workout?
1: It's largely the same, but only specific because of what they're lacking. So if you look at a bodybuilder compared to a powerlifter, compared to a strongman, an MMA fighter, a football player, you just name things. There's always going to be a degree of damage. There's always going to be a degree of neuromuscular junction firing. There's always going to be a degree of overall neuromuscular action happening. So we understand that we kind of look at the training. So are you going through a glycolytic block as a bodybuilder? Are you doing more elactic work as a how if you're coming into a competition? Are you again in the Olympic lifting based world and maybe you're having a blending depending on the micro you're in or whatever. So it's more so based on what you're training, how you're training, what you're lacking. So let's say that you, for example, like let's say when you guys, you guys just, just cannot recover in between your sets. Maybe you're just sitting there, you're just gasping for air. Maybe you ate extra cookies, put on extra 10 pounds of fat. And all of a sudden, that rest period is just terrible. You got very imperfection at parasympathetic beta oxidation, and you can't recover in between sets. That could be a good time to maybe bring in some PICO2 pre workout, 500 milligrams, a gram, something like that, to actually drive up hypoxia inducible factors. So you can do what? You utilize oxygen better. What else could you maybe bring in? Maybe we bring in the creatines during the workout. So we're recovering intra-set a little bit faster. Maybe we are also doing something along the lines of something we'll talk about a little bit later on with like a Celan or a CMAX. So other different products that can come in to potentiate the workout that aren't necessarily the high-tier androgens or growth hormones, but the nootropics or other kind of you know technical PEDs that maybe are or are not on the water band list.
2: what do you say to the arguments that dietary creatine is more than sufficient for the benefits of creatine? So a lot of times people will say maybe chicken or steak is more than adequate for the amount of creatine you need for training.
1: Um, So yes, but no. Yes. Meaning it is awesome. I love using food as our healing source. That's what it should be. Right. We should have our variety of different kinds of proteins and fats and carbohydrates. We should have our fruits and our vegetables. Like, all of these things have different substances and micronutrients in them that we need. Like I love having uh, cashews for a lot of people The adiponectin change you can get and the change in insulin sensitivity is massive. Like that's so cool, right? We can eat a food and let's change. We can have watermelon on a daily basis, get that nitric oxide change in a low resting heart rate environment, you can actually get a good amount of low hemodynamic change. So if you're someone who has blood pressure problems, maybe have some extra watermelon. Like it's nominal compared to what you get from a citrulline malate product if you're getting it with a scooper but it's that chronic background it's what it's actually uh associated with in there it's not just citrulline It's all of these other micronutrients in there so i love that as the baseline of thinking but then you got to remember take a step back and what are we we are athletes are we training like most people no so even though we are eating like most humans should which is high quality again at least 90 percent of the time we're all humans i had cake and pizza and donuts over the weekend i'm a human i'm gonna do that you know Um, but as long as we're having that food, the majority of the time, we still be kind of popping off our stores. If you want to say it that way, because as an athlete, again, you're just unlike any other creature out there. So we kind of have this world where we have normal people, general population. We have dysfunctional general population. We have natural athletes, and then we have enhanced athletes. Those are all completely different spectrums of humans. When you look at them from a biological perspective, in terms of what they're doing, just look again, because I love using the autonomics resting right now, if you were to check, All of our heart rates, our blood pressures, how we're utilizing fuel, and then compare that with one of our parents, one of our grandparents, and look at the sick, the healthy, it's all going to be so vastly different. And we're going to be on the higher positive end of the spectrum because we're so athletic, because we're fit, because we're healthy, and that's going to change how we utilize everything. So as athletes, we kind of need more. That's why we supplement. We supplement creatine as a supplement because we need more.
2: Alex, Kind of maybe the last thing on creatine, but sometimes, and it seems to happen in the female population, is that we experience some negative side effects. So some females report hair loss. Uh, and obviously, in the sports science community, it's generally creatine is as quoted as like the most studied and the safest supplement, uh, and not the obviously fear monger creatine. But do you think there's any uh, kind of foundation in those thoughts?
1: Oh, a thousand percent. I have seen it all. I had a couple females literally take one, one five-gram mili- five scoop of creatine and woke up the next day with hair all on their pillow. That was the only change. Um, whether it be a DHT cascade or some other like telogen effluvium, uh, efflexium, I can never pronounce that phrase. Um, it's essentially stress-induced hair loss, which people get from taking semplitide and things like that because that's big in the news today. Um, it can also, I think, drive that cascade through gut-based mechanisms, but a lot of it's is just speculation. All the research has been done on creatine out there. It's labeled as safe, but it doesn't matter if it's a supplement, a drug, a food, a training style, whatever, every kind of response can happen because biologically we're all so different. And when I see that happen a dozen times or whatever, I'm kind of, I put that in the back of my head, like maybe there's something there. I can guess at the mechanisms, but it's just a guess. But I know for those women, we just stay away from it. But those are some very real negative side effects that you just see.
0: Alex, in terms of supplementation, obviously, we've spoken about like the very acute application of intra-workout carbs or intra-workout creatine. You mentioned there something about the, the kind of chronic habits we might have or before you're get, going to sleep, you might take certain things or during the day or during certain cascades you're looking to to take in a very similar ilk to kind of our first question today. What do you think is one of the main things in people's lifestyle today that's really holding them back or maybe a bigger mission that they have that could be holding them back in the kind of strength and power training sphere? That's a
1: good question. So I'd probably say the bookends. So the sleep is terrible. And throughout the day, they're just sympathetic as heck.
2: We didn't pay him to say say that with the sleep thing either.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right up there, right? Yeah, yeah. We did not Uh, pay you to say that. Actually, yeah. What do you have in there?
2: We've got uh, vitamin C, we've got zinc, magnesium, activated B6, so P5P, and we've got sodium as well. And uh, we're getting uh, we're getting a lot of good reports from it, from, from night sleep from people.
1: I like that. That's awesome. And that sounds more of like a baseline circadian player to take, not like a, hey, you need something like a Xanax-based fuel. Yes. You need like a Magnolia bark yes. wipe you out. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. That's like a complement-based product. Yeah,
2: very much so. Very yeah, much so. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah.
1: That's nice. That's good. Like everyone is up in arms these days about melatonin. There's nothing about melatonin at all, but people are taking five, 10, 20, 30, 50 mil. Like they're taking astronomical doses instead of looking as being a background circadian player. So to answer your question, I feel like it's the sympathetic activity throughout the day that starts in the morning. And then at night, they still can't turn that off and have poor sleep. So in this kind of paradigm, we're looking at bringing some kind of like circadian-based players to help get our body to release the, the, the right ligands and hormones at the right time. So we know the majority of the day, we should be parasympathetic. We should be low heart rate. We should be pretty chill. Depends on personality. But overall, you shouldn't be sitting here with 100 resting beats per minute, unless if you're me right now, because I get excited when I talk about this stuff. But in general, it should be very low, low heart rate and pretty much relaxed. And we're, what we're doing in the morning, 10 sheets of the night. So one of the things I bring in with almost everyone is Cut and selenium first thing in the morning. What that's doing is because everyone looks at Cut and goes, oh, liver health, right? Because it brings down liver enzymes and manages them. Liver enzymes, if you can imagine hepatocytes, so the cells of your liver like this, okay? Once they get perforated, they kind of open up and they leak out these proteins called AST, ALT. So those different kinds of proteins are leaked out. That just happens in certain people, and that's not really a good measure to, of the degree of damage, rather the degree of healing, because that's what they're going out to do. So slightly elevated liver enzymes is gonna be there for mostly all strength athletes and isn't a problem at all. You're creeping up to the hundredth consistently. Okay, what's going on here? Let's see. Um, but even more so than liver enzymes with Tudka specifically, it's potentiating those diodenase cascades at night. So remember, thyroid hormones are up here. Below those are these cool little enzymes called diodenase enzymes these little buddies make sure that the thyroid can do what they're supposed to do. So they can help the thyroid gland. They can help the codons of the receptors the thyroid hormones. They can help the actual overall structural action of those receptors to fire and do things properly. And they pretty much dictate what thyroid hormones do in the first place. So without deodinase enzymes, we wouldn't be able to see, we wouldn't be able to lose body fat, but muscle tissue, like they're really important players and they don't get a lot of light spotlight because You don't get blood work and see, oh, what's my deodinase levels at? Like, you can't do that. We don't have that technology. So instead, T3, T4, reverse T3, those kind of get the spotlight, which I get. But two potentiates that extremely well. So already, you're starting off, you're taking something in the morning that's going to help you at night. And it does multiple other things, but let's just leave it there for now. Then we have selenium selenium is doing the same thing at night but also throughout the day it's also driving up all of those baseline immune based responses and cascades so by the time if you go to bed and your immune system just took a beating that day those are the days when you lay down in bed and you're so tired but you can't go to sleep you took so much of an immune bird that you're just laying there like oh my god why can't i fall asleep it's usually that or stimulants but it's usually the immune problem selenium is also a big part of that entire thyroid hormone receptor cascade as well so Going back to the codons, the structures with potentiating the TUTCA, potentiate the enzymes, potentiate sleep. So at night, we have a big release of growth hormone, the release of thyroid hormone. We have that 2 a.m. spike of growth hormone and thyroid hormone as well. Those are very big nocturnal players. So those morning ones are not only helping our day, but also helping our night. When it comes to nighttime, because this is now fixed, and let's say throughout the day, uh, we kind of solve that problem. And again, maybe that's not solved the problem from a sympathetic standpoint. Maybe there could be some ashpagandas in there. Maybe there could be like an emidin in there to block, that blunt of cortisol reduction, a lot of different things in there, but we'll leave it there. Nighttime, the background compliments like your product are awesome because they're not putting you to sleep. They're just helping you to endogenously, naturally go to sleep by releasing your own stuff that should be. So, when I say ligands and hormones, those are just the things that bind on receptors, send their signal, through the fun stuff, create the action. So, things like that are awesome if people are maybe they're waking up towards the latter half of their sleep cycle. So let's say they get up at 6 a.m. and they're waking up every day at 4 a.m. to go pee and then they're just out from them. Usually look at renal health. So maybe you want to take like an astragalus before bed to help with that renal EGFR-based repair. Um, And you just kind of problem solve like that. If you're waking up multiple times throughout the night, maybe that's the time to have like a melatonin spray. Just you wake up, quick little spray in your mouth, one, two, go right back to bed. Does a great job on initiating sleep cycles. or not keeping you asleep, but just getting you there. So there's a lot of things we do talk about sleep, but in general, it's looking more at those baseline players. And at night, the biggest ones what you guys have there, the zinc and magnesium. Those are honestly the two biggest players you should have at nighttime. And then from me, the rest is kind of extra, because there's so many things we can talk about there. But to me, those are kind of if we're looking at just four, two, and two, those are probably the four biggest ones.
2: So I think probably a big gaping question here is that we've we've talked about creatine is the first thing you mentioned. You talked about intro workouts. We've talked about setting up your morning uh, via Tudka and selenium, and then we've got like that zinc and mesium at night. Uh, we haven't, you haven't mentioned a uh, noticed uh, caffeine and it's obviously something the vast majority of people maybe go beyond use and are kind of abuse caffeine regularly, but how does that play into all this? And what, what's it? And obviously there's a lot of research on its uh, impact on strength training and performance, but how's this playing into all
1: this here? Yeah. So, like I said before, everything is awesome. There is no bad, but there's use and there's abuse. So caffeine is usually a nootropic community I've realized because I work with a lot of people that are whatever, higher tier, what do they call, uh, biohackers or influencers. I don't know the terms these days. I'm very out of it from only being 30 years old. But I just felt, no, I don't follow people. But either way, the nootropic crowd tends to hate on caffeine because it's so bad. It's a stimulant. It's awesome. Just like all those nootropics that they're taking. There is no bad thing out there. It's just are you a good candidate for it? So caffeine, for me, for example, I respond so well to the actual change in brain waves that I get from hundred milligrams in the morning. That changes and improves my ability to encode memories throughout the entire day pretty dramatically. So for me, hundred milligrams, kind of in the early hours of the day, and I'm awesome for the, throughout the entire day, no matter what any kind of stimulant, We're trying to keep it at the earlier half of the day or kind of midday, only because we're trying to not impede sleep cycles. At the same time, though. Those receptors, they actually bind to that entire stimulatory cascade that happens neurologically. Doesn't affect everyone. Certain people can have three cups of coffee, go straight to bed an hour later. They just don't get that same caffeine metabolic response. But a good general rule of thumb is, like for performance reasons, three mg per kg. You can do that per day and be completely fine and drive up performance extremely well. No matter what, we want to try and keep the stimulants earlier half the day. But anywhere from about you know one mg to three mg per kg per day of caffeine is going to be more than fine and pretty well tolerated for most people. You have the outliers that can take more, can take less, but right at that range is usually just enough to give you that background stimulation and sympathetic release because it's just sympathetic replacement therapy. So just like if you take testosterone for TRT, this is caffeine for glucocorticoids. This is just the actual uh, therapy that you take to replace.
2: And if you're someone who's very susceptible to those big crashes, is there anything we can do to keep that wave going without taking more caffeine?
1: Yeah, L-theanine works super well. And if you look, it's usually combined in all caffeine products these days anyway. Um, You can buy one, like I I love the one cap, so I actually have 100 milligrams of each. So 100 milligrams of caffeine, 100 milligrams of L-theanine. It works extremely well to kind of dull out that curve. And then it also potentiates those actual alpha and theta wave cascades. So again, driving up the the memory and the actual memory coding and the learning process. So you want to talk about pre-workout, we talk about strength-based athletes, for example. Your ability to get better at squat overhead press whatever lift you're doing is all based on your ability to actually encode new memories it's all motor learning so you have your motor cortex you have that myological muscle component as well but a lot of strength is all neurological in nature so even though you need the body to keep up with it there's a reason why you can see these you know certain women i've seen women that are 30 kilograms put up hundreds of kilos of weights i mean you guys have seen it all the time right how can that happen because mechanically it doesn't look like they can Because neuromuscular junction-wise, leverage-wise, they can fire so many more neurons and interact with so many more myofilaments than other people can. So the neurological component is obviously massive.
2: So the Becoming a Horse program is one of the newest programs that we have on the Seek a Strength app. This is a program that I wrote for someone who wants to be well developed in their athletic potential but don't necessarily play a sport right now. Maybe they played a sport in the past or you never played a sport, but you want to develop that athletic potential and not just focus on strength training primarily. You want to round out some muscle development, you want to round out some of your power development without going full hog into each one of these aspects. Aspects. The programme consists of four days a week and each block is written in a 12-week block. What we're looking at is a couple of different aspects. We're looking at strength development, hypertrophy and power development. So when we're looking at the strength training, we have primary movers, are the high bar squat and the deadlift. Now when we're looking at the hypertrophy work, we're looking at a lot of weighted calisthenics and isolation work, such as weighted push-ups, weighted pull-ups. Shoulders, direct shoulders in the form of maybe a loo raises, and then we have the strict press, which is kind of blurring the lines between the upper body strength movement, but also with the hypertrophy work in the program. Power development. The program we've got a couple of different movements that work in this. We have the clean, which you can either run as the full clean or you can run as a power clean in the program. This is finally then we have some once a week plyometric development. And this largely comes in the form of jumping. So this is some box jumps and depth jumps in the first program. So I hope you enjoyed Seek a Strength app on iOS and Android. It's something that I've been working on for a while and I really hope that people can get what they need out of the program.
0: Alex, on that kind of neurological pathway, uh, when we're looking at that relearning or uh, learning for the first time, products out there like NuPept or products of a similar ilk are becoming a lot more popular. Obviously they were very much a kind of cult following or a small little world uh, only a couple of years ago. What's your kind of general view on on that for athletes? Like obviously you have a lot more experience than we would in, in this area. Is there a kind of entry level drug to this? Something that's above nicotine or caffeine that possibly gives a better effect for the everyday athlete? Not somebody who's going to the Olympics, but somebody who just wants to be better at their sport. Oh,
1: yeah, God, that is an awesome way to go down a good path to talk about. um So, let's say entryway before we get into NuoPept, so n lester let's take a step back and just look at traditional alpha GPC. So, I have it right here. I have it right here because if we're talking mid-conversation, I need some more acetylcholine, I just take one. That's all it is. It's just acetylcholine replacement therapy. Like we talked about with caffeine being more sympathetic replacement therapy. That is just giving you more acetylcholine for your brain to do stuff. Whether we are learning in, um, um, if I'm learning something with text academically, if I'm learning in the gym, if I'm whatever, that's just more fuel for your brain from an acetylcholine aspect. So you want to make sure you get the actual L version. So it's that left-handed enantiomer that has the actual full 300 milligrams. So if you look, that's why I have the Now brand. It is And You just look at the back and see that. That's probably the best introductory one for anyone to take pre-workout because you could buy it anywhere in the world, pretty much. And you take 300 milligrams pre-workout, you're only going to notice everything enhanced. Your ability to get into a squat or whatever motor pattern is going to be easier. If you're a bodybuilder, the ability to contract is going to be easier. The overall mental clarity you'll get from it is going to be heightened if we understand what's going on neurologically i think the easiest way is like i said before where your brain just thrives on acetylcholine that's just like the raw fuel we can give it so let's give it that so we can perform a little bit higher when you're actually training you are burning up so much acetylcholine it's leaving all these little acetyl groups there and if they kind of sit there they can land different parts of your body different parts of the brain they can start driving up insulin resistance in that specific area so insulin resistance in the hippocampus is going to do what? Downregulate your ability to drive up memory retention. into resistance in your quads is going to do what? Downregulate your ability to fire those quads, to build those quads, to get stronger motor patterns with those quads. So that leads to a different conversation with alcarnitine, but we'll talk about that later on. Alpha GPC is probably the easiest one for most people to get into. And then from there you kind of graduate to maybe the new PEPs, maybe, like you said, the nicotines, maybe the CMAXs, the sellings There's a ton of ones out there
2: maybe could we move kind of laterally with well, like alpha gpc is there anything kind of uh, accompanying that that someone could kind of you know you're just new to it and you're still around the edges of this kind of thing where could we go from there that's still relatively uh, maybe benign might be a good way of describing it but still effective
1: definitely. yeah yeah definitely so i think we'd stay in that choline family so if you kind of think like choline up here we go downstream we have cdp choline then we go into phosphocidylcholine over here we have all the ethanol amine so phosphocytyl ethanol amine phosphocytyl uh yeah also that's what i mean, and what we're trying to do is obviously potentiate that entire cascade as a whole as well as bring blood flow and hemodynamic improvements to the brain so something like an acetyl l-carnitine orally can do a very good job of bringing more blood flow to the brain still donating some kind of an acetylcholine-based cascade if we look at that choline, that can also do the same thing but it releases acetylcholine from neurons Whereas the alpha-GPC is just giving you the raw additional constituents of acetylcholine, basically. From there, the other ethanol amines, um, we actually won't talk about those for today. But then if you go down the line and look at other players, like I have one here. I got so many things over here. I have my pregnenolone. I got amoxapine, pine bark. I think I don't have it here. The CDP choline. Um, that is going to release acetylcholine levels as well as things like dopamine, serotonin, norepi, so, you can kind of say, okay, let's just take alpha GPC first every day pre workout. No problem with that at all. Maybe work that up from 300, maybe to 600 milligrams on like a heavier session. Um, so, maybe on the easier days, only 300 milligrams, harder days, about 600 milligrams. That's your baseline. Then, from there, as you're kind of going, but you're the person who gets very really tired, neurologically trashed after a workout, maybe that's you need some acetyl carnitine to just donate more methyl group to that process and to bring in more blood flow to the brain to recover a little bit faster. So that donation of methyl groups drives up that acetylcholine synthetic process as well so we're using a different product to get choline from a different way and then maybe in the background after you do that for a while you're like okay cool i know how to potentiate my workout with uh the alpha gpc i know how to recover from my workout with the carnitine. then maybe throughout your day like it work maybe works very important to you it's awesome for me it's one of my favorite things to do so i really care about how i perform with my work in this world maybe a fossil acetylcholine will come in just to release a little bit more additional uh, acetylcholine from your neurons themselves so you can stagger things basically when you need them. Um, if people are getting that brain fog that everyone's very well known for having these days in 2023, then if you see an acetylcholine problem, it's either a debt problem or overstimulation problem. You can fix it through one of those three ways. But I'd probably say those are probably your three best bets laterally in that conversation. So I actually
2: have two particular things I want to ask about this before we move on. The first, let's say you're sitting at your desk.
0: How much cocaine is too much cocaine? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you sit at your desk you know you're you've been looking at excel for four hours are you reaching for caffeine first or are you reaching for alpha gpc first and it's like what's the alpha gpc right away okay so anytime you have those re-
1: re- uh repetitive tasks that you're just doing over and over and over again hence why i have it right here why i have so much stuff right here is because as i'm doing emails for check-ins as i'm doing podcasts as i'm doing whatever I always want to be superhuman. I always want to be a thousand percent, whatever arbitrary number. So I'll just, we'll be talking. I might put stuff in my mouth in five minutes if I need it. Like I have them all right there. That would be your alpha GPC.
2: Okay. Um, One other thing you mentioned as well is acetyl-L-carnitine. Do you have any concerns about the increase in TMO or do you think that's overblown? Do you think that's relevant to the, the issue?
1: Not overblown, but where are those actual quarantine proteins going? So I think that's where everyone kind of mistakes everything because this comes up all the time too. If you talk about injectable carnitine or really any kind of carnitine based product, if you look at that cascade and what happens in the gut with TMAO and all of those carnitine based uh, metabolic steps that occur, it's happening when there's an overabundance of carnitine in the gut, right? So that makes sense. We take, let's say, acetyl quarantine, buy a pill, we swallow it's in the gut, right? That dissolution based process that happens kinetically changes. So, I'm, do, I'm doing this because those carnitine proteins don't just stay in your gut. If they did that, you just have the carnitine poops, but they're different from the creatine poops. But you would just, it just sit there, right? It would just cause those TMAO based issues. But instead, it's doing this. It's dispersing throughout. It's going to your neurological tissue. It's going to your biceps, your calves, your forearms. Those carnitine proteins are being spread everywhere. So, for an athlete taking carnitine, those carnitine proteins are going everywhere you need them, not where you don't need them. If you're maybe a general population person, maybe lower on the muscle mass spectrum, maybe dysfunctional, then most definitely those will contribute to more problems because they're not utilizing the protein proteins properly, and they're just sitting in the gut and they are causing those problems.
2: Okay, so just a real quick recap, because we've covered a lot before we go maybe into the grayer areas of things. So we've got our um creatine as kind of our first go-to of any of this stuff we've got our intra workout so that's ea's uh, creatine in that air we've got some source of carbohydrates then we've got our selenium we've got our tauka in the morning and then we've also got seek asleep in the evening or some other zinc magnesium uh, but of course sleep for outside. sure exactly <laughs> that's then what we're... i use <laughs> <laughs> then we uh, then we move on next and we're still in our very much kind of white area i'll call it we've got our alpha GPC, we've got our uh, orally-administrated um, L-carnitine or acetyl-L-carnitine, um, and then we're... Oh, we're still, yeah, phosphatecholine. Anything we're missing there before we kind of shift over a bit? We cross a little line, you might say, the proverbial line. Is there anything you're, you're like a big player there that's that's kind of obvious that you'd, you'd want to bring in?
1: No, just because there's so many. Okay. there are, uh, There are options naturally to fix everything. Yes. so we're just talking about you know want to test a completely natural buy it off of your whatever nutrition website that to me is maybe the baseline because it could just keep going and going and going you have erectile dysfunction based problems you have further sleep based problems you have you name it you can fix it with so many things out there so i think maybe we do we stop it there and then maybe we transition to the next part
0: so now on the important things <laughs> uh, <laughs> alex obviously you're well-known for working with a massive range of athletes, but particularly with some kind of very high-level athletes. Um, And I know when Owen started introducing me to your stuff first, some of the the first things that came up were the kind of injectable L-carnitine things or the use of injectable choline. Um, Could you maybe talk on that and, and the kind of relative effects of those and more importantly, or maybe just importantly, how effective they are in comparison to, or maybe in conjunction with standard anabolic or androgenic agents?
1: Gotcha. So I think actually first, let's look at oral carnitine, and injectable carnitine. Oral carnitine is awesome. Oral carnitine, C L carnitine, completely different products, but let's look at oral carnitine, and injectable carnitine. The difference is that oral carnitine, this is going to sound very common sense, but I think it has to be said, oral carnitine, Take it orally, that passive diffusion process that occurs throughout the gut, how that actual supplement gets metabolized is only going to allow you to reach physiological levels. Right? Sounds right. Like your body can only go up to here, so it, it's going to be capped out there. Injectable or carnitine bypasses that dissolution process, goes straight into actual biological tissue, gets taken up into the bloodstream, and you can do this. You can bypass nature and go super high and be super physiological. So, The only difference is the magnitude of effect when you're going from the injectable preparation versus the oral counterpart. So if we look at that actual injectable quarantine um, for strength athletes, I mentioned the buildup of seal groups, we'll say neurologically with insulin resistance and things like that. So if you are the strength athlete, who's really just getting beaten down neurologically, it's that buildup of seal groups, your injectable while quarantine post-workout. It's going to do a very good job of clearing those acetyl groups. In the pre-workout setting, it can do a tremendous job of fluxing your actual energetics during the workout itself. So remember we talked about those rest periods being able to use fat you know pretty efficiently to recover. It's going to increase actually those. It's going to drive up acute actual IGF-based cascades and tons of androgen cascades as well. So during the workout itself going back to the change that's happening with blood flow and blood pressure and all these kind of cool things. It's also taking your baseline hormones and it's just picking up a little bit more. So just imagine like L-carnitine, just not being the thing that's going to raise your testosterone, you know, 3000 points or whatever, but just one dial extra. It's slightly potentiating everything in your system on top of proper gut-based cascades, contractility, carnitine does. Oh my God, almost everything it helps with fertility. Like I can go on and on. That's why I have the ebook it does so many positive things for the fluxing of nutrients, for potentiating the workout itself. So if you're the strength athlete who maybe you don't have problems recovering from your workout, but the workout itself has to get better, part going to come and play. Drive up VO2 max, can increase recovery, actually not just intraset, but post-set and all that kind of fun stuff as well, rather post-workout, um, take it pre-workout. It does a ton of different things. So think of that as like your workout potentiator from like a myological aspect. The choline comes in and it's different than the actual alpha GPC preparation. Alpha GPC is awesome. The only difference is the draining of the seal groups that you get from the injectable choline. So it's going to allow that recycling process to happen faster. If it's like a traditional chloride preparation, it's gonna pull more things, so more cellular things inward. So obviously just that negative charge, is pulling in like it's supposed to. So all of a sudden hyperhydration of musculature, it works more on that somatic system as a whole as well. So you're gonna get slightly more physiological adaptations. So think about it like, our physical adaptations rather. So the injectable choline is kind of the thing you would use pre-training, whereas maybe alpha-GPC might be better off used pre-studying or pre-work or something like that. That's only if you're taking the injectable choline preparation though. You can get the same benefits from alpha-GPC. It's just a lower degree because what we say, it's that super physiological action versus the physiological action. Does that make sense? Perfect sense.
2: Where can people get that ebook just before we move on?
1: theprepcoach.com everything's over there
0: perfect so alex in that uh, particular case where you're saying the injectable choline might be more uh performance based or the kind of an injectable version will bring you to that super physiological level is there certain sports or certain applications where those kind of things that thing where your ability to contract muscles faster comes into it is there certain sports where that's more applicable like are sprinters more susceptible to using those kinds of things than your marathon runners or your bodybuilders.
1: Definitely. So the higher energetic the sport is, the more they can benefit from carnitine or carnitine choline injectable preparation. So if you were at like the Olympic level in running those sprinters, Oh my God, there are grams upon grams used per day in the carnitine world. CrossFit athletes. So everyone likes to, and I don't, I love CrossFit by the way. So I don't want this to come off the wrong way. But everyone likes to think that it's such a clean sport. There's no PEDs used at all. And I mean, it's just like the NFL, NHL, NBA. Like we are, these are professional, high tier, the best of the best athletes. Everyone's doing something, whether it's the creatine, whether it's the carnitine, whether it's the choline, everyone's doing something. They're performing at such a high level. Why is it, why, why is it seen as bad? So in the CrossFit, the CrossFit games, for example, injectable uh, carnitine and choline is and i think it should be abused it should be very high dose because they can get away with it first of all energetically because of their sport requires it number one number two it's not water banned so it's not illegal the act of injecting something gives everyone that kind of Ooh, he's doing something bad right there's something else in there but in reality it's completely legal not water to and if you think about it like you can't test for that even if they wanted to ban it anyway the quarantine proteins and the choline like it's already there you know um So I would say mainly those sprinters, um, striking-based athletes and CrossFit athletes are kind of the three that really shine for taking carnitine, cold injectable to just astronomical levels. Then we kind of come down and we kind of have physique athletes, strength athletes, strong men. They're all all kind of in the same spectrum of still benefits just as much from it, but you don't need to go up to the multiple gram range to actually elicit the best benefits.
2: So if you're a natural athlete and you want to remain natural in your water testing, is like one of your go-to recommendations uh this kind of injectable carnitine and choline like that's kind of one of the the best things to exp- or one of the things to exploit
1: most definitely because the only hurdle is getting people to actually inject themselves and that's the tough part like they have to come to me and say hey I'm okay with doing this I just don't I want to be natural and I want to be able to pass a lot of drug tests someone says that cool we're going to bring in carnitine choline if you're okay with that. Um, but if they are okay with that, then most definitely that's kind of the first, I don't say line of defense because we're not, you know, fixing a dysfunction here, but it's the first line of defense to really drive up performance extremely well because it's also very versatile. You can also have like a quarantine coin preparation before like a chicken or a free meal to change how you're actually fluxing all those nutrients. So the quarantine to actually store nitrogen to store the glucose better. And then the actual fat metabolism would be uh, actually altered by the choline. So the choline actually enhanced fat metabolism, throw that onto that parasympathetic beta wheel. So as you're eating your cheeseburger and cookies and ice creams, that fat that you're eating is just being thrown on that wheel. It's being burned up. Nitrogen is being preserved in muscle tissue. Glucose is going where? as glycogen also preserved in muscle tissue. So it's very versatile.
2: So if you imagine this kind of, Traveling along a line of like white area to gray area, is there anything kind of laterally on that gray area, like that choline or carnitine, that might give a natural least and who wants to stay natural an edge? Is there anything else, uh, let's say above a certain level of significance?
1: Definitely, I'd say that would go to Dadas. So, di- I mean dichloracetate. A lot of people don't know about this. It was used uh, for three, four, five decades in um, people that have hepatectomy. So I actually stumbled upon it because I had a client who went through, had a, pa- a hepatectomy. One of the things you have to do, so liver's way too big, way too fatty, they gotta cut parts of it off. The first thing you have to do before that surgery occurs is you have to atrophy the liver. So first you got to make it this big, get it this big. The smaller it is the higher the chance of success, rate is gonna be with that actual recovery from the surgery. So first thing you have to do is that the recovery is actually very dependent on a couple of different things. But one of those is that pyruvate to acetyl-CoA process. So this is, I'm I'm getting to uh, Dada. If we look at glycolysis, so something every strength athlete, every athlete out there is doing anyway just by training. It's getting glucose, glucose glucose-6-phosphate, fructose-6-phosphate, fructose-1,6-bisphosphate, all the way down to pyruvate and pyruvate. From there, pyruvate then goes to the sidestep and goes through this process to get acetyl-CoA. Acetyl CoA goes through the Krebs cycle, gives us some NADH, some FADHs, and ultimately gives us what? ATP. That's how we generate energy. The better you can get at that process, the better, the more muscle you can build, the more poundage you can lift, just the better you're going to be as an athlete. If you go back and look at that pyruvate to acetyl CoA process, okay, right in the middle, there's that pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme. What diisopropylene dichloracetate does is it comes in and it inhibits an inhibitor on that process. So imagine being able to convert as much pyruvate as you have to acetyl CoA that means unlimited energy it literally does so you can just keep churning and churning the negative here and this is why i was kind of hesitant to say it is because people get hurt with that all the time so mm-hmm. let's say that you are going for a double and all of a sudden you can do it for a triple but you feel really good and you go for four five six seven all of a sudden you tear your quad because you didn't anticipate just how strong this product could be so dad that yeah. works well. It is uh, obviously not WADA banned because I don't even think they can test for it. I, no, no, they probably can't test for it. Um, even if they wanted to, they don't even know about it. Even though I've introduced the P olympics for a while now, um, it's one of those things next to quarantine. Yeah. Oh, in the gymnastic world, I worked with a lot of gymnastic-based athletes, uh, but story for a different day.
2: But, so it's it's that significant that you're cautious of the administration because you're getting such profound benefits and it's not WADA banned, for
1: example exactly yes yeah. so completely legal to buy completely legal to take you do have to inject it so maybe you have to get over that hurdle it's not wide lot of band but it is something that works so well for most people and you have to play with the dose that's the only uh there's two negatives uh one the non-responder response is very low which is cool but there's still non-responders not going to get nothing out of it so that's number one not too bad number two the dose just can be everywhere to get the actual response we're trying to elicit it could be anywhere from like 25 milligrams all the way up to like, you know, a couple of hundreds of milligrams. So it does take a little bit to get used to and take some trial and error. But once you kind of find your sweet spot, that's kind of your go-to on competition day.
0: Alex, one thing you've mentioned a few times now today is, is finding that sweet spot or that your dosage for X, Y, or Z might necessarily be the, the kind of standard recommended dose. I, there used to be a thing for years where you'd find the amount of fish oil tablets to take by taking one more each day until you shit yourself. <laughs> yeah. with with yeah. this kind of stuff like third obviously yeah today what's that?
2: that's the third kind of shit we've had today
0: yeah but <laughs> with the like the creatines for example there it's kind of a lower risk thing if you're slowly increasing a dose you're going to notice some sort of upset and then you bring the dose back down from there with these kind of products when you're bringing them in um so say if somebody is working with a coach like yourself are you monitoring certain all your markers every day okay and it, that's how you get your your level of of input
1: yeah so no matter what we're always checking autonomics so blood pressure heart rate resting heart rate basic ventilation like all the basic things how's your mood how's your training how's sleep like you're getting all of those measurements anyway the bigger thing is you have to introduce dad that was someone who is responsible or the person who can go in, have 700 pounds on the bar to squat and go do two and go, oh, God, I got to put this back or something's going to break because I feel so good today. When they know they shouldn't have done more than one, they did two anyway. So you have to have that responsible introduction. And to me, it's more so not just the autonomic measuring. It's more the conversation you have back and forth. So as a coach, you have to have a great relationship with your client to make sure you say, hey, I know you can do this. Hold yourself back. Trust me competition day then you can go and blow your wad and potentially tear something like we'll do things to prevent the tearing on competition day but when you're not in that perfect setting of being peaked for a competition the last thing you want to do is hit astronomical prs back to back week after week after week because you guys know things tear after that things break things pop and that's not what you want
2: alex subtly hinting why i haven't got it yet
0: <laughs> <laughs> I um, alex i actually think this brings us perfectly to to another area and it's probably an area where a lot of people will have seen content on our channel or heard people talking about it on our channel and that's those products that might help when one of those tears or one of those injuries occur and we had someone talking last year we had Rocco speaking about the power of BPC 157 or TB 500 are those things that you're recommending athletes use or are they things you're seeing success with
1: a tremendous amount of success, but the problem is most people use those healing peptides wrong. And so they're seeing all these crazy results, right? They're getting like half of the results they could be. So if we look at bp 157 TB500, the traditional ones, we won't talk about the other more obscure ones that most people can't get, but those main ones rely on that growth hormone, insulogenic phlebotic axis. What I mean by that is we not only have to have a high amount of phlebotic changes, so hematological blood flow-based changes, But you also have to have acute high insulin sensitivity and high acute somatic base levels. What that means is if you're taking your healing peptides without accompanying growth hormone or some kind of growth hormone peptide or insulin or some kind of insulin sensitizer or some kind of a phlebotic player, you're starting to get benefit out of it. And there may be a reason for doing that. There definitely is. Not as much as you could be, though. So most people use them wrong, but again, you don't have to do that every time, but the vast majority of time, people should be administering these with those because that access has to be upregulated. So those receptors have to be receptive in order to do their actual action. Another thing, well, that I think people forget about is that all those somatrophs are really working from a localized receptor-mediated clearance aspect. What that means is local. You can apply these things locally, intramuscularly, intra to get localized healing effects. Still going to go systemic because the moment you inject anything, that first peak of second, it goes systemic. Whether it's long after testosterone, trend below, and growth hormone insulin, or whatever, it's happening systemically the moment it enters your body. Orally injectably, it's happening. Some action happening non-genomically. But we can get a lot more localized effects if you introduce it daily, because we're getting that localized receptor-mediated clearance. So let's say you trigger bicep or whatever that would be administered with something like a growth hormone and insulin, a TB 500, a BPC 157 every day where you got the injury, maybe an inch above because gravity is going to pull it down and you're getting not only the chronic benefits, but those actual acute benefits. So the non-genomic and genomic, what you end up seeing is that bicep tendon or whatever it was that tore healing in like four weeks compared to like seven or eight. So it's still going to work. But if you set them up, put them in the right environment, be a little more sophisticated, they are just going to work that much better.
2: So, Alex, we're we're definitely in the area now where we're very much in the outside the grey area. Oh yeah, we're we're in the uh, (laughs) the danger. Sorry for bringing that up. (laughs) No, no, we're we're in the danger zone now. So it's it's uh, it's probably a good segue into it. Where where are we going from here? That's uh, kind of all purely theoretical, of course, and and no no one should ever do any disinformation. and of course uh, none of your athletes do this either. But where are we going from here? That's not not PEDs, not uh, growth arm related peptides. What's, what else yep. is kind of in the murky waters of uh, untestable by water? You don't have to give away trade secrets now, but if there's some things you think there might be kind of novel.
1: So, first of all, I think the problem most WADA athletes make is they look at the banned substance list and they go, okay, I want to take that. So I find the drug, I can find the clearance time with the metabolite. Why not just find the drugs they're not testing for? the quarantines the colings, the diasopropylamine, dichloracetates, all of those little players. Um, but since we are kind of in this gray area as well, we'll look at like the CMAX and the sellings and things like that, where it's kind of in between both worlds, but not really, you know. Um what we're looking at here is more of the improvement in motor learning and the actual reduction in anxiety cascades. So sometimes when people go up for a maximum lift on competition day, the reason why they screw up is because they make the wrong decisions. They walk up to the bar, say again, they're going to squat or whatever. And all of a sudden they start you know, getting revved up. When in the past, every time they squatted, it was a low, a low slow walk up to the bar, easy under, easy down, good to go, very calm and cool. All of a sudden, overly sympathetic, they made the wrong decision. That all comes back to anxiety-based cascades. So this is where like Lang and CMAX really come in where they can ameliorate that extremely well. But CMAX drives it more from an actual um, dopaminergic, serotonergic side of things. Whereas selling drives it more from a BDNF, so brain drive, neurotrophic factor side of things. Both of them can drive up motor learning just in different ways. So if you are someone like myself who's a dopamine head, always excited, always pretty happy, I'm probably going to respond a little bit better to the actual dopamine nurture side of things of a CMAX. Whereas maybe you're someone else who's not like that, who is maybe more even, always kind of cool, calm, collected, um, but never super excited, never super sad, just kind of that monotone-based person, maybe a selling would be the best kind of first line of option. That'd be more of a pre-workout setting dosage. And again, you're doing that to learn the movement patterns better during the workout and perform better on competition day. Could be intranasal, could be injectable. I prefer the intranasals uh, for like competition. And lately actually in general, the intranasals are working a little bit better, just less invasive, a little bit easier as a whole. Um, work extremely well, but that'd probably be the next kind of gray
2: area. Okay. So we're, we're leveraging stuff purely for the benefit of learning a skill better, which obviously... Is relevant to pretty much everyone watching this because everyone's basically sports based or performance based. So, is there so they're very much in the kind of the the quote unquote naughty area, I would imagine. Uh, is there anything kind of laterally from that or back further along the kind of stage where we can use? Uh, is there nootropics that are not tested? Is there supplements that we can use to learn a little bit better?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. Um The one I had I actually showed you guys earlier. That I won't bring it up. Uh, Moxpine sustenate it does a very good job of driving a focus and concentration to a couple of different cascades. It's one of those things where it also potentiates all of the other nootropics in play because of the upregulation overall neurochemistry that occurs with it. So something like an amoxicine sustenate used infrequently throughout the week, if you are someone who just has a hard time focusing, concentrating on the workout itself, that could be a really big player to use in like a pre-workout setting fashion.
0: Okay. I think that's a really interesting thing actually is that a lot of people think about their their kind of drive or their overall arousal going into a session they'll think about how well they can recover they'll think about their energy they have very rarely do they think about how well they concentrate throughout the entire session and it's something okay. that comes up that's
1: everything right
0: 100 percent. it comes up all the time with athletes where like oh by the time i got three accessories you know that this this happened and this happened whereas in fact a lot of the time it is just that concentration lapse um if people are finding that happening, Alex, and maybe they're leveraging some of the things we spoke about, do you think that in that case, it's a it's a timing issue? Or do you see it being a timing thing where possibly they, they took their caffeine too late or too early? Or maybe they were using something that kind of, for want of a better term, wore off or the effects wore down as they were going? Or do you find that being a, a kind of overall dosage thing? They just didn't take enough of the caffeine or enough of the stimulant or whatever it is and then by the time it gets to the end of the session their level of concentration or focus has dropped
1: so actually other um option c i'll go with what i've been seeing especially in 2023 is that neurochemistry is being down regulated across the board everyone and i don't want to say it's the wrong way um education is kind of slipping as a whole kind of systemically um, and that's not everyone, but the vast majority of the population IQs are dropping. People are getting dumber. Um, again, not saying that as a negative thing, but something as simple as taking out uh, cursive handwriting, the ability to write in cursive, using both portions of your brain, non-stop motions, there is a reason why people text you these days. And it's one sentence. And then you get another text with another sense and another text, with another sense, instead of one cohesive thought in one well-structured actual text it's because they can't use the both hemispheres of their brain properly because that lack of communication that goes back to the lack of cursive writing and just the overall lowering of IQ systemically. So to me, the way I've been approaching that problem is actually fixing neurochemistry as a whole. I don't think it's anything people are doing wrong. I think it's more society is causing more problems than people realize with the social media overabundance and just all the things that are kind of happening. I think that's more of it. So all I'm trying to do with all my athletes and this is everyone in general is let's just say you're operating here neurochemically let's just get you up to here let's just get you back up for you should have been if you weren't scrolling on instagram for seven hours and getting that dopaminergic rush and having nothing to do with it like that screws up a lot of things same thing with, like uh the porn addiction that a lot of people are having these days that dopaminergic rush is now causing ed based issues and sexual function based issues in females and males They're always looking at porn on their phone. They're always looking at explicit photos or things like that. There's always that state of arousal. So arousal from social media, arousal from all these sexual things everyone can look at, this high state of arousal is just down-regulating everyone's brains. And people are, again, not trying to be mean, but slowly getting dumber and less intellectual as time goes on. And again, not a negative at all. It happens. We just are trying to make that better. So we're just trying to inform everyone of that. So to me, maybe we also look at the other baseline players if we're trying to correct that problem, just looking at improving baseline neurochemistry with the new OPEPs, with the Lion's manes, with all these other players that drive up the actual growth of new neurons and improve their axons and just get your brain functioning better to encode more memories, to communicate better. There's tons of supplements for that. But to me, it's looking at overall neurochemistry of just get you from here it's a little bit better.
0: Alex, one thing that strikes me ever since I've started kind of, uh, looking at your content ever since ona started working with you and i I'd have kind of a peripheral view of the amount of work that goes on there is you seem Sorry. to you seem to learn at a like you seem to be constantly learning like you're a vivacious reader of of all all current and previous research from what I can see like your videos are very very well researched obviously you have structure with your own neurochemical uh, supplementation. But is there other things you bring into that? Is there a system of learning you use? Is there a note-taking method you use? I know a project, he has separate notebooks and all the separate notebooks are for different things. Could you maybe speak to that for a little bit?
1: Yeah, so the way that I really learned, it took me a while to figure this out. Um, as of the past year, I almost have a completely photographic memory which going back to high school and stuff, like I was the dumb kid. I got B's and C's. I never tried. Like I was never just the smart. I don't get things. I have to read things even to this day. Well, maybe not now, but oh, maybe a year or so ago, I started to read things like 50, 60, 70 times, like a ton of times to remember these things. And then I found out how I learned and that's being able to visualize. And it sounds super common sense, but you can't visualize it. How are you going to remember it? So the same kind of thing with your squatting patterns and all the lifting-based things, if you can't really see it happening and close your eyes and say, oh, I know exactly what it looks like, how it feels, how are you going to remember it? So I specifically learned, but I have a whiteboard right there. I can write it on, the right, on my whiteboard on a certain way or in a certain color. I'll take a picture of that. I'll put it on a folder on my desktop, and I will almost be able to remember it forever. So if I close my eyes, I picture all these different files, literally just like my desktop, my computer. I go to the file, I click on it, and I see right now, I made a video about the running Angiotension aldosterone system. I can, in my mind, I can click on that. That opens up, and that picture comes up Not from what I wrote on the board. So I can see the aldosterone, the ATR cascades. I can see um, uh, just different things going on in that entire system with bringing telmosartan or whatever. And that's how I personally learn. Then I started my mentoring program, started helping uh, coaches be better coaches. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, everyone is getting really good and they're learning the same way. So maybe it's not just a me thing. And then you learn about how learning actually happens and that visual component that goes on there. And all of a sudden I realized, okay, it's not just me. I'm not special. Everyone can learn better this way. And so I started trying to present my information in that better way. So over the past couple months, especially over the past year, I started doing more um, videos with the whiteboard because i'm illustrating it so people aren't just watching going oh maybe remembering one part but now they're remembering the entire thing so that's personally how i do it. it's all whiteboard i take a picture of it i save it if i ever forget something i click on it and all of a sudden i remember everything that's
0: so interesting
2: Alex, i think there's probably you know loads more we could cover here but in terms of uh what you do and what you're offering people so we find you at prepcoach.com and um alex eagle on instagram what if you had to give a kind of an elevator pitch of what you do for people, just in case someone's kind of wondering, can they
1: reach out to you? Yep. I fix biology. If you have a biological problem. I fix it. Whether you're a professional athlete trying to improve your sprinting time, whether you are the football player on the line, whether you are professional bodybuilder strongman, whatever, all the way to the general population person who just wants abs, trying to lose some fat to the person who's getting a hepatectomy to the person who's going in their transitional therapies, going from male to female, I literally have had interactions with almost everyone multiple different times, and I keep all those cases on the files on my computer so if I forget anything, I can go back and for the future clients, oh, I've seen this 25 times before, click on that, oh, that was the connection, we can solve your problem 10 times faster. So I fix biology, that's probably the easiest way to say it. And maybe it sounds lame, but I can't think of a better way to say
2: it. I just have to obviously attest to myself and Alex have been working together for nearly, is it nearly 12 weeks now? it's just about. Yeah. We've a, 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 another bit to go for another couple of months, I think, but uh, I can obviously, you know, very positive. You're, you're like this all the time, essentially uh, even via email. So uh, highly recommend it. So if you do have issues, uh, I would highly recommend reaching out to Alex. Um, you like
1: all the uh, exclamation points and smiley faces.
2: Oh, I like it all. I'm, I'm here for it. So <laughs> I'm imagining you, you saying it as a person. So. Um, good.
1: Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I feel like I'm the least professional person out there because everyone that I talk to usually like, if they're inquiring for the first time, they don't know me. It's, alex palma new paragraph thanks for your time calm like everything's perfectly structured and i reply with like 37 smiley faces and xoxo or whatever yeah, yeah, you know yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> you got you got a uh, you, your personality does come across for sure you know and it is uh, it is undoubtedly uh, uh, a great service um alex, I
1: love, I love hearing that. thank
2: you so much um i'm sure we'll have you back on for sure
0: yeah to everybody listening i could not recommend following alex on instagram as well uh very very insightful and incredibly informative videos so yep. thanks very much for your time alex
1: my pleasure guys whenever you want to do this again i'll come back